In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Heavenly King, O Comforter, O Spirit of Truth, who art in all places and fillest all things, treasury of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O gracious Lord. Amen. May the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. These last two sessions that we've had, Father James has been sharing with us mankind's life in paradise prior to the fall. That rich daily fellowship that mankind shared with God and that perfectly ordered existence in the earth that he created in which to share himself with us. And I've been considering some things that I've heard over the last couple of weeks. And before I even go into my consideration, I pray you have. My friends, when we come here and we receive the teachings of Christ's church, it is intended by our Lord to be a revelation to us that we need to go and ponder. It's not enough to have ears to hear on the day, in our, whether it's in our worship or in these discipleship classes. It's not enough just to hear it then go on. We need to allow this to be as if we're looking into a mirror to see our true selves like we're told in Holy Scripture and never leave that image. So that we're always in the pursuit by our pondering, by our thinking through that continued prayer and fellowship with God over the truths that He's revealed to us so that these things become real in our life. We'll talk later in this session about this particularly that my friends, without our pursuit of God relationally, none of this is going to become a reality in our lives. None of it. Because this is absolutely 100% relational to have revealed to us the kingdom of God and the experience of that in our lives. And so I, I have been doing my best to ponder some of the things that I've even heard as Father James has been revealing this life that man had in paradise. And I tell you that some of the things that keep churning around in my mind one is the wonder of the intimacy that man had with God. The absolute intimacy, no division, no separation. He's right there before. Such intimacy that man was able to have with God. And I see a God who is thoroughly involved relationally with man and all the things that he had created, but particularly with man. And I, I have thought about and seen a God who a God investing in the actual existence of the human person, not by way of ideologies, not by way of ideas, not by way of intellect alone, but rather investing in the human person by the direct relational revelation that he gives. That's what we see in paradise. It's as if we see God totally 100% interwoven in the fabric of the existence of all the things that he had created and particularly with the crown of that creation, mankind. And what I absolutely fail to see in the Garden of Paradise and everything that we've been hearing in the creation narrative, I completely fail to see any separation of God and man, any distance between God and man. In other words, I fail to see anything that looks like a two-story existence that we've been talking about. God and man existed together in fellowship. And my friends, we have been brought right back to that. But yet at the same time, 
from last week's teaching. While I've looked at all of this and, and, and seen what, what this relationship was to be established by God in the garden between God and man, last week Father James shared about the fall. And if you look at what man had in the garden of paradise, and then you look at the results of the fall, he taught about the fall of man the cause that was caused by the temptation, how God's created ones got that temptation, received it in themselves, united themselves to the temptation, and we know the results of it. When you look at the fall of man compared to what creation was, if you take every blessing that we've spoken about regarding man's existence in paradise and tore everything wonderful and beautiful and powerful, and that's not even doing justice language-wise, it's as if by our separation from God, the way God created things became turned inside out. And this is what we have inherited, not Adam's guilt, which is a false theology. What we have inherited is man's condition in that sock pulled inside out, right? Total opposite, total opposite. Man divorcing himself from God when he did, losing every benefit afforded to him there. He lost his oneness with the Father. He lost the intimacy of fellowship with the God who created him. He lost the ability to gaze directly upon the countenance of God. And see, that's where we really come to know God. What do we pray in our prayers? We say this all the time. We've mentioned it in so many classes. Show us the light of what? Show us the light of your countenance, and we will be saved. The actual face, not just the actual face, the expressions. When I smile, you look at me, my countenance tells you something about myself. It tells you I'm happy, I'm joyful. Or if I'm weeping, my countenance is uniquely different, and I understand you as someone who's suffering over something. We come to know one another through knowing the countenance, and man lost his ability to gaze upon the countenance of God until Jesus Christ. But he lost his ability to walk in that way with God. In fact, the more that you consider the fall of man and all that was lost, it really ought to bring us pretty close to some weeping. If we really saw just how much Adam had and just how much was lost in the fall, there should be a profound weeping in us for what was lost. St. Paul talks about this numerous times in a number of his writings. I'll share with you from Romans 7. That he says, I find this law at work in me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And thank God for the next verse, verse 25. He answers that very question. Because he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you see, the more that we see what has fallen from where it was, and we can always put our lives in a parallel of this, my friends. When we see what was lost, and we have a bit of tears over seeing that, very clearly. The return is we ought to also be weeping with joy at what has been returned to us 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because He's forged the way for us to be as reunited with God as Adam and Eve were. That we can truly come to know Him. That we can gaze upon His countenance. That we can come to know Him as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and grow and become like Him. We can enjoy the paradise of knowing Him. See, that's what paradise is. It has nothing to do with geography. Paradise is knowing God, existing in and from Him, fellowshipping with Him. And in this life, what's been returned to us is that we have a God who journeys actually with us through the wilderness of this life. He is the cloud by day for us and the fire by night. He is the good shepherd actively as person leading us, as real living God, leading us from green pasture and still water to green pasture and still waters all of our days. The kingdom of God is here and now around us and is eternal. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? Now on earth. In the same way, that it is in heaven. I want to make an interesting statement, one that I borrow the words from Father Stephen Freeman in his book, in his book, Everywhere Present. He says, we've got to stop living like Christian atheists. What an interesting contradiction of a term. Talk about tension and timony, right, right, right there, right? We have to stop living as a Christian atheist. Let me define Christian atheism for you, or at least try to. A Christian atheist is one who believes in the ideas and teachings about God, but lives their lives as though God is nowhere to be found in the moments of their existence. That's Christian atheism. To believe things about this religion, Christianity, but to never know the Christ of it. Christian atheism is absolutely not the life of a true follower, the life of a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. It can't be. Because we don't follow. We absolutely do not follow teachings and ideas. We follow a very real resurrection, resurrected and ascended person who, yes, teaches us, and who, yes, gives us ideas and good things, but He gives them and He teaches and He does it all as a sharing of Himself with us so that we know Him, not about Him. Always remember that joke that I always say. We've got to keep this in our minds, but we also have to let it be a little bit of a plumb line. Where are we in all of this? The fact that if I jokingly looked at you and said, I just read the biography of Abraham Lincoln. He's now become my best friend. This is a ridiculous notion. I've never had fellowship with Abraham Lincoln. I've never seen the countenance of his face. He's never seen mine. Now, I might know some stuff about his life, but I don't know him. I do not know him. That's Christian atheism. And I tell you what, the Enlightenment and many things in the West is the way it began to form theology unfortunately played into the damage of the spread of Christian atheism. And we've got to get out. There's part of it that's got its tentacles in us. There's no question. Which is why we're doing this. Why we're allowing the Lord to show us the true existence of the Christian in the kingdom of God. 
is to come out of that Christian atheism and into the Christian kingdom. You see, that's what we're after. We're after that collapse of the two-story universe that we've been talking about. And by the way, the two-story universe and Christian atheism are synonymous. They're synonymous. This is what our set, we are setting our souls upon in this series of teaching, this journey of God helping us to take the blinders off of our soul so that we can both see and embrace the kingdom of God and that kingdom of God is truly around us at all times, both seen and unseen. See, this is the paradise we've been brought back into, and I want to address something very quickly. And I think it's important to watch out for this within ourselves, that I'm going to confess before you and see if you resonate with this. That there are ways in me that are still a bit afraid to have that curtain pulled away. Now everything, don't get me wrong, everything in my heart wants it. But that doesn't mean that it's not mixed with a little bit of fear. A little bit of fear at what we might see. Because we may have the sense that if everything gets shown to us and, and we become, we have the kingdom of God realized around us and in our lives in such a way that there's nothing that's not, that's left barren, right? We're left barren at those moments. We're left open and it doesn't feel safe in some ways. Father and I both love quoting C.S. Lewis. So I'll quote C.S. Lewis in the from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in <clears throat> the conversation that Mr. Beaver and Lucy had when Mr. Beaver is introducing her to the idea of Aslan. And Mr. Beaver says to Lucy, Aslan, Aslan's a lion. He's a great lion, Aslan being the Christ figure in the book, if you haven't read them. Aslan is a lion, a great lion. Susan replied, ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver replied, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. But he's good. My friends, we're going to have to let loose of the idea of seeing Christ our God as safe in order that we might experience his divine goodness in our lives. It's something we're going to have to let loose of as part of our journey through this existence because our Lord will disrupt just about everything in our lives. He will disrupt about everything in our lives because everything in our lives needs to be disrupted and recalculated toward paradise. You see, he will do this and it won't be comfortable all the time, but in his goodness, he will only disrupt our lives to the degree that we can handle it in that moment of our existence. Last night in our Inquire Catechumen class, we talked about examining ourselves before Eucharist which really means that Holy Spirit, judge me now. Shine the light of illumination within me so that I see both what I am and what I'm not, where I've fallen short. Our Lord only shows us enough that we can handle about ourselves at any given moment, never more, because he's the lover of our souls, not the destroyer of it. And so Aslan, our Lord Jesus Christ, is not safe, but he's entirely good. And so we're going to have to let go of that, let go of those fears. So for our two-story universe to collapse, 
our minds have got to be renewed into these things like we've talked about before by the help of the Holy Spirit, both to see what our senses see and experience the kingdom through the senses, but also to grow in the knowledge of the very real faith experience that I experience the things unseen all at the same time. All at the same time. Remember what our Lord Jesus Christ said? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. You know, many people think that Jesus was talking about himself. Blessed are you that see me. But, but blessed are those who don't see me and yet believe. It's more than just himself. It's the entirety of his kingdom. Let me give you an example from our prayer life. In our prayers, we have a prayer to our guardian angel. Anybody seen him lately? I pray one day you might. Even in this life, perhaps. When I pray that prayer, and I've said this before, there are times and many times the faith that's there is I know he's there. I don't see him, but my guardian angel has become a reality in my spiritual life in the kingdom of God. And there are many times when I pray to my guardian angel, I have my hand out like this. Just as my gesture to the reality. And I'm not faking it. I know that there is a guardian angel and there's one for each one of us. And I've come to that faith. There are other areas of the unseen I need to grow greatly in. But that one I've pretty much got, thank God, by His grace and mercy. Blessed are those who believe yet don't see has to do with everything of the kingdom of God that's been wrought for us. Everything. Including, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said last time I taught, we are going to have to look at the incarnation and its manifestation of the kingdom of God, and we are going to have to set ourselves to chew on them. Chew on every thought. Ponder, wrestle towards Christ with every thought. The title, by the way, of this teaching, so you know where we're going for the rest of this time, is Christian Atheism, Jacob's Ladder, and the Pursuit of Christ. So we're now going to move. I want us to talk about Jacob's ladder because Jacob's ladder in Holy Scripture is an absolutely beautiful example of someone's two-story universe collapsing into one all at once. And the church fathers have done wonders bringing the true spirituality of the kingdom of God, the realities of the seen and unseen, and all the iconography of Jacob's ladder as our spiritual ascension. Jacob's Ladder presents that story to us. And I want to preface it by reading to you from Father Freeman's book, Everywhere Present. Listen to what he says. He says, The greater problem we have is a world in which the absence of God is an actual construct of our human understanding. Such constructs not only govern a culture's perception of the presence of God, but render the personal encounter with the presence of God is very problematic. When the scriptural record of God's revelation is a succession of stories, each of which God makes himself known by accommodation coming to man in those moments. He makes himself known to man by accommodation. Though it is true that God is everywhere, no story in scripture portrays any patriarch, prophet or apostle encountering God in such a manner. His revelation to man is always specific and it is always particular. He can be named. He can be known. The land of Israel 
is covered by places whose names are derived from specific encounters with God. And that includes Jacob's Ladder, which comes from Genesis in chapter 28. I want to read to you this full encounter. Follow me in the progression. Lock on to the progression of things because you're going to see the unveiling of the unseen to Jacob there in that place. I begin in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There stood the Lord by him and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you your descendants, the land on which you are living. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offering. Listen to what he says. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. This is the talk of covenant. This is the, co the covenant maker, our God, but also his nature of faithfulness that promises to fulfill it despite man. He will fulfill. When Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought, listen to this statement, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now notice, this is one whose two-story universe just collapsed right in front of him by the revelation of God to him. Listen to what he says. Jacob's eyes were opened to what was around him. He said, God is in this place, and I didn't even know it. My friends, what you just saw there is what we are after in our Christian existence. In the various moments of our day, in the worship we do, in our prayers, corporately and individually, to have those moments of fellowship and revelation from God where all of a sudden we are in awe and we go, God is in this place. And until now, I hadn't seen it. I didn't know it. This is how our two-story universe has got to collapse. The story goes on. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. When God shows up, everything in creation change, changes, even the naming, the identity of places. You have to see the sacramental in that very thing I just read. That space now set aside by the very presence and revelation of God. Man, Jacob recognizes this and then he honors it by setting up standing stones to remember the experience. And he pours out oil to set it aside from God. You know what happened? That place just became a thin place. Where the distance between heaven and earth were minuscule. 
And this is what how Jacob responded. Then Jacob made a vow to God, saying, If God be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear. In other words, Lord, you've said what you'll do for me. Then I... <clears throat> I will return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I offer you a tenth. Jacob's response of the revelation of God is to make an offering of himself. And this is that dance of relationship and our eyes being opened and our proper response of love to love. This is what we're seeing in this story of Jacob's ladder. Let me mention a number of truths from this. One, do not see Jacob's ladder, because remember what it says, a ladder touched earth and reached to heaven. Do not think of Jacob's ladder as being a picture of the two-story universe, because Jacob saw both in the same place. He saw heaven, he saw earth, he saw the ladder in between, he saw the angels ascending and descending all on this plane, if you will. This is what he saw. It's the acknowledgement, like we said earlier, that paradise isn't even about a place, it's about our fellowship and the experience of God. Fellowship with God. God reveals himself in this ladder along with the unseen. Not only did Jacob know that God was there, but he saw everything that surrounded him. He saw the angelic host ascending and descending. His eyes were open to all of this. And I will tell you that the latter was a type that would be fulfilled in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and his bringing the kingdom of God to earth so man may have the means by which to ascend. Not only uniting heaven to earth, but at the same time, uniting man to God. The whole of the Christian life, and we've said this over and over again, is this constant ascension by means of this kingdom of God brought to us and its king. Second thing I want to mention about the Jacob's Ladder. If we were to look at an icon, I looked around, I couldn't find one today, and I apologize for that, but I'll describe it to you. If we were to see the icon of the Ladder of Divine Ascent, which is based on Jacob's Ladder, you would see the totality of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Because in Jacob's Ladder, what do we have? We have the ladder, and at the top of the ladder, we have the saints of God who are cheering us on and praying for us, interceding for us, beckoning us to keep going up one rung at a time. You would see the angelic hosts in this icon that are literally lifting up man to stand up and move up. These angels given to us are part of our journey and the strengthening we need is a gift from God ministering spirits who minister to us all along the way. You would see the people of God praying at the bottom. You would see the angels. You would also see the demonic. Because part of our existence right now is the demonic in a very real way trying to tear us down from the ladder all at once and even to distract us from the beauty of the ladder. There's nothing to see here. There's nothing to experience here. Go to church. Go on to your jobs. That is the constant mantra of our enemy to deceive us into thinking that we've not been granted paradise so we don't go looking for it. 
And we see this in the iconography of Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder, that narrative, also opens our eyes to the sacramental truths of our life in Christ and His kingdom. In that story, by the presence and revelation of God to Jacob, heaven and earth all of a sudden were joined as one in that very place, and Jacob's eyes were opened to the nearness of God and His kingdom. I can't think of any better description of the sacramental reality of the church than that. Any time, whether it's in that sacred space, in our fellowship, in your homes, in your car when you're praying with God, any time that you have revealed to you heaven and earth joined together and Christ our God and have fellowship with Him is a sacramental event and reality in the kingdom of God for us to be able to enjoy forever, absolutely forever. And when heaven and earth were joined in that moment, it was the first part of making that place where Jacob was holy, but there was a second part. The second part that made that place holy was Jacob offering himself back. Have you ever thought of that? Not just, remember when I mentioned how icons are blessed? I mentioned it a few weeks ago. Bishop John pointed out, we bless the icons because parishioners had brought it. But Bishop John said, yeah, but when are they truly, when is the blessing fulfilled and realized? When people pray. When they gaze into the icon and pray and experience Christ, now the place is holy. You see? And that's what happened with Jacob. Jacob responded to God. If God will be with me, I give you this. I give you the tenth I offer to you. Man now experiencing the kingdom of heaven and earth as one because of the presence of God responds by keeping it holy with self-offering. And finally, you ever thought about the ladder of divine ascent or Jacob's ladder as the liturgy itself? Because it absolutely is. When you walk into the place, we've mentioned it a number of times, when you walk into the nave, is if at all possible, and for us it is, and it should be if it is possible, is the altar straight ahead or is it raised? It's raised. It's elevated. There's a reason for that. It puts the fact that the Christian existence and experience of Christ and His kingdom is a consistent ascension, a constant moving up, a constant growing, shackles being released, our being more freed to experience all the blessedness of the paradise that He has given us. And I tell you right now, angels ascend and descend from that altar. <clears throat> Ministering spirits, as I said before, that God has given to His people that they encounter Christ and encounter His salvation and be elevated up that, letter, up that ladder. And our Lord is infinitely present with us, just as He was with His disciples in the upper room, no different. The holy in that time, Christ our God, joins Himself to the mundane. Regular bread and wine of the earth, made by the hands of men. And He joins Himself to that and goes even further makes it the very means of actual physical as well as spiritual oneness with God. I pray we think about these things more and more as we come to approach the Eucharist. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to think about it this way, He is both the ladder and the destination. He really is. He's both the ladder and the destination for us. And we keep that sacred space holy by our prayers. And I can testify to this. And many of you who were here three years ago, first of all, I'll testify to this just in the normal weekly here. 
there are times where I go back into there, whether it's Monday or Tuesday even, and I will go back into the nave and the entire holiness we experience together is still profoundly there in sight and smell in the very feel of the kingdom of God. And there's such an incredible peace that I start there for a while. And it's very real. And many of you will attest to this. Do you remember when we had our Western Rite Conference? We hosted it here. We had our Metropolitan, our Father in the Faith. We had our Bishop John here. All the priests and clergy and their wonderful spouses, many parishioners. And we were all praying and learning and growing and worshiping. And I tell you right now, this parish itself experienced such a divine blessing for months beyond that. Because God met with us and the entirety of his church met with him. And we experienced that together and it lingered as a blessing to us. Many of our parishioners told me that months after. And that's the reality that we have. That's the reality we have. I want to conclude our time today now going to the idea, we're looking at what we're after and what's available to us, but I have to put in you the absolute importance of our pursuit of Christ and the kingdom. Because if this is relationship, action and movement on our part are going to be required for us to have our eyes opened to Christ and his kingdom present all around us. A few weeks ago, for example, I mentioned it twice already. I gave you part of this in go and ponder the kingdom of God. Go and ponder the incarnation. Go and ponder these things like the Blessed Virgin pondered all these things in our heart, all the things that Christ would be and do. She pondered them in her heart. And we've got to do the same actively. And I also mentioned for you to take a break from the norm and get out into some place of beauty, whether it's sacred space or the sacred space of God's creation. And to get out of the norm and look for the fingerprint of God all around you. And you don't have to nod your heads. And I'm not asking this to shame you, but to encourage you. Have you? Have you made any movements? Any offerings of yourself? If so, if not, please do. Begin, begin. I want to share with you a few parables that Jesus told about the kingdom of God, which is what we're wanting to have our eyes open to. And they're parables that show us our part if we want to see and experience the kingdom of God. They're both very brief parables from the Gospel of St. Matthew in chapter 13. The first one is the parable of the hidden treasure. Here are the words of Jesus. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, I want you to see three things. To encounter, to experience the kingdom of God, to say yes to our Lord's desire to reveal it to, reveal it to us. The first is this. We must have a desire for it. You see, the man looking at the treasure hidden in the field, he saw it and he desired it. And he desired it so much that he pursued it. So we have to have desire. Then we must pursue. And guess what? There will be a cost. It says he, he sold everything he had to be able to purchase it. 
that field so they could have that treasure. You see the same three things in the very next parable Jesus says, the parable of the pearl of great price. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it again. You see the desire of the person for what's before him, the pearl of great price. You see him pursue it, and you see him sell everything to obtain it. Desire, pursuit, and there will be a cost that we will have no problem paying. Why do I say that? Why the desire for the one who saw the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price? Why the desire and willingness to pay the cost for the great price? Because with the help of God, they got glimpses of the prize. The only way that our desire is going to grow, the only way that we are going to pursue what's now in front of us is to allow God to show us the truths. And when we see them, you know, right now, in many areas of my life, and you may attest to this as well, I think we're all growing out of an unwillingness to pursue and pay the cost. And part of that is because we still have spiritual blinders as to what it is we'll obtain if we do so. Because if we really saw the experience in this life and eternally that is to be had, what is to be gained in this fellowship with Christ and all the benefits of the kingdom of God, there's nothing of this earth to be worth anything. And we would do everything to pursue with everything we have, pay whatever we could pay of ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him in order to obtain. Does that make sense? Those, those are Jesus saying the kingdom of God is like. Our ears ought to perk up. Jesus is saying what His kingdom is like. If you want it, desire it, pursue it. And as He shows it to you, you will give up everything to follow Him. That's just what the disciples did. Absolutely what the disciples did. I want to conclude something by reading another passage by Father Freeman. He says, If we're not careful, sacraments and daily life become emptied of an encounter with God. A God who remains generalized and reduced to ideology is no God at all. Only the daily encounter with the living God, with all the messiness that it entails, can rise to the name Christian. And there is a dialogue that may take place between Christians and atheists, but there is prior to that an even more important dialogue in which to be engaged, and that is with practical atheism of Christians who have exiled God from the world around us. Such practical atheism is a severe distortion of the Christian faith and an extremely poor substitute for the real thing. True Christianity presents a God who cannot be exiled from our world, no matter how men try. He has come among us and not at human invitation. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He is already in the public square as the crucified God who is reconciling the world to himself, whether we like it or not. The, the renunciation of practical atheism comes 
when we do the only thing the Christian of a one-story universe can do. Keep the commandments of God, which is following a very real Jesus Christ, and fall down and worship, for God is with us. Any thoughts? Questions? Yep. So <clears throat> Say again. I'm a practicing Christian Yeah. Me too. Guilty. I'm not good. Yeah. Welcome. Well, you're in good place. Um, I guess what's hard for me to kind of wrap my mind. Yeah. Okay. So when the apostles went out and they talked to everybody, they were kind of in a culture where everyone knew they were gods, right? There were some they, they worship. They just didn't worship, you know. But they had this belief there's a God or God. They some had, deity, right? Yeah, some deity in their life. So the spiritual side was like common to them. So fast forward to here with us. It's not common with me. Um, it's not common in our culture. That's, that's, that's what I want to understand. It's what we've been raised in. Right. So how do I unwrap Okay, this is a very good question. So let me tell you what I know and what I will never know. Both. The church, our Lord Jesus Christ, both in that day and it stood to today, has granted a rhythm for the life of his people to live in. And that rhythm is prayer and fellowship with God. We know this with the hours of prayer. We know that we, what's having to be adjusted, even within that rhythm, is how we even see prayer. Because, again, if we're seeing prayer as reading words on a page and checking off the list of a good Christian duty, then we're not praying. We're not in the rhythm. We're doing the things of the rhythm, right? So one is to allow our Lord to really change our minds as how we see this rhythm. But we must be about the rhythm because that change happens in the rhythm. This is the wisdom of God, the prescriptions of God for how to live in his kingdom. So you must be about faithfully the rhythm of God. Now, don't raise your hands. How many of you are faithfully in the rhythm of fellowshipping with God? I say yes and no in my life. And you probably say the same. Okay? But we must be about that rhythm. That's number one. That's prescribed. We know it. Now, let me tell you what I can't tell you, Gary, or any of you. And you can't tell me. I can't tell you how the vine of fellowship is going to grow on the trellis of the rhythm. The way that you approach God, the way that you experience God, he knows you. And he's going to show you himself in ways that you can receive him, not like he would show to me. Because we're all blessed, handcrafted individuals by him. And he's the only one that knows how to bring us to himself and save us. So my answer to this is, be about the rhythm with the truth of what the rhythm is. Fellowship with God. Be looking for pursuing fellowship with God through the rhythm of the church. And let that be like the Father say, the beginning, not the end of your prayer. Let the vine of the fellowship with God grow. In other words, when you pray, talk to him too. When you're frustrated, tell him you're frustrated. When you're broken, tell him you're hurting. Cry if you need to. When you're angry, yell. 
You see? God has a way of correcting anything when we get out of bounds. Don't worry about that. Right? But I don't know how that fellowship is going to play out. I know that it has to for your life. Just like you couldn't say for mine. Does that make sense? A great question. Thank you. And even in our opening ourselves, let's remember our posture. What we tend to do, if we're honest, is we open ourselves so that God can come in and fit in our little box. We will never unlearn what we need to unlearn, and we will never become what we need to become if that's our approach to prayer. When we open ourselves to God, it's the opening of God to say, you come and illuminate me. I'm the one that needs to change my mind about how I see things. And he will do so when he's met with that humility. That's what, for me, Father said what did that part for him. For me, I had to come to the point of saying, I don't need to be right anymore. I need you to be right. Show me what's right and show me what's real. My life has to adapt to that, not the other way around. See, our culture pounds us with the opposite, doesn't it? Keep God in his box. No, that's not the way it is. see that in this parish right here, this fulminating of God's grace. Yeah. In the last two days or so, there are some of you in here who went in your kitchens and made stuff for the bake sale. We had a beautiful spread here. Your generosity in, in supporting St. Sophia's work that we support other missions and other things that are important to the church. Your generosity this week three hundred and seventy seven dollars that you people put in that basket for god's work and i am very grateful for that it's one of the people in the kitchen cooking <laughs> but what i made was humble what everybody here is you know, it's dummy it's just common but god takes us and blesses it so you know we bring it and, and bless the church with it you guys eat it and bless the church even further. It just multiplies out. 
So on behalf of Saint Sophia, thank you all for that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. close with this because I'm watching the time I don't know honestly how many people for the last four years have been praying prayers for the Great Commission to be fulfilled now I know a number of you have but I don't know how many but I know not everybody has and that's okay didn't have to be everybody God took the prayers of the few or the half or whatever it happens to be and look at our parish. Look at what our Lord has done. Why do I say that? Because you've heard me say when we give God an inch, he takes a mile. And this is always going to be true. And it's going to be true in what we're talking about today. Even if the smallest portion of our life leaves this crack open in the door for God to reveal himself, you will have a prism of revelation stepped in by God because he'll honor that. And now fast forward to the collective journey of the body of Christ. If each person begins to grow in that opening up to them, the experience we will have collectively in the kingdom of God together here in this parish, I cannot even fathom because it's so profound even now. But I can't wait to see it. I really can't. Let's stand in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all.